2: Welcome to Our Wild World. Today's topic is animal rights and the fate of Africa's wildlife. In conserving Africa's wildlife and protecting animals, is this the same thing? My guest today, award-winning environmental reporter Glenn Martin, takes us through this question as it applies to Africa's megafauna. Large landscape species survival conservation includes habitat biodiversity and overall environment environment, and the cascades of biodiversity that depend upon it. The new wave of animal rights, animal activists, and animal welfare, which considers the life of each animal, often in isolation of the species as a whole, as critical, and that none should die at the hands of humans. This often opposing view presents challenges and conflicts and restrictions in making large landscape conservation workable. Glenn, through one-on-one conversations with many of the great names in the history of conservation in Africa, will learn these varied perspectives and their impacts. The ever-increasing influence of the animal rights movement, science, and politics championed by animal welfare groups, which often leads us into a paradox – That is, the elimination of the very species, including elephants and lions, that are the most cherished. Fascinating, engaging, and deeply informative, whether you simply love animals or are in the business of conservation, I urge you to read Glenn's book, Game Changer. It's a fair observation and a collection of perspectives through history up to this modern conundrum. Mr. Martin takes us right into the heart of these conflicts of dogma. The debates between conservationists versus those who believe that restrictive pro- protections, including that which forbids hunting, is the most effective way to conserve wildlife and habitats. Focusing upon wildlife rich range states from East Africa to Southwest Africa, Glenn vividly dis- demonstrates how our world's last great populations of wildlife may well have become hostages in the battle between those who love animals and those who would save them. Good morning, Glenn, and welcome to our wild world. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure having you here. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, and I strongly urge our listeners to pick it up because this is a a huge issue these days. Uh, I'm a conservationist. I've been working in conservation for 30 years. And this movement of animal rights, the reality today is very, very different than this iconic vision we see in our natural history programming. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to feel that this book was a, a necess- was necessary to be written, and how you got there.
3: Well, I uh, covered environment and natural resources for the San Francisco Chronicle for almost twenty years, and uh, within the course of my career there, I met uh, Lawrence Frank, uh, who is a uh, a renowned vertebrate biologist specializing in, in carnivores, especially. Uh, 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 hyenas and the African lion, and he has a several projects going in East Africa. He lives part time in in the Bay Area, and he contacted me. He'd been following my work for some years and asked me if I if the Chronicle was up to sending me to Africa to uh, uh, just to look at some of his uh, lion conservation programs. Long story short, I did go over there. I wrote a series of articles on Frank and. Uh, is uh, projects in Laikipia in Northern Kenya, and they, what I saw there got me thinking about a lot of things about Africa and African conservation. And what was what was particularly in the news at that point was this conflict between the International Fund for Animal Welfare, who was lobbying against any changing of uh, Kenya's uh, wildlife laws. Uh, there was uh, an attempt to uh, to loosen those strictures on hunting, so uh, tribal conservancies could be established game cropping could be instituted, and possibly other forms of hunting that could be uh, implemented that would, uh, the funds that then would be realized from that could then be put towards uh, uh, conservation programs in Kenya, which were both starved for funds and uh, belabored by corruption. And uh, long story short, uh, that was the genesis for the book. I got a contract with the uh, University of California Press, and I got some funding, and I went back over and um, in the course of several trips and did the research and writing.
2: Well, I, for one, am <laughs> very glad you did. And um, I'm kind of astonished that Lawrence Frank contacted you, reached out. He is uh, definitely one of the big names in conservation. I had the opportunity to meet him. And right from the get-go, we um, were sort of at odds with each other, but we did come around. Uh, <laughs> a story, we're doing yeah, a conditioned yeah, he's, he's taste aversion on African lions <laughs> yeah. and uh, averting them against the taste of beef so he he certainly had some issues with that but anyway it worked out well it came down to is um shouldn't we be trying whatever we can to save these species Mm -hmm. so in your book you 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 talk with so many people and I was really intrigued with your conversation with Ian Parker one of the um historical figures and the theme that kept Occurring to me, reoccurring through this, was the concept of sentimentality mm-hmm. and emotionalism and perspective. Let's right. talk a little bit about that and how that plays into what you what you uh, researched.
3: Well, well, Parker, as you know, is a seminal figure in African conservation. He's now well into his late seventies, I believe. Uh, since I wrote the book, he's moved from Kenya to Australia uh but excuse me we're in, we've been in occasional touch with each other um he was a one of the one of the uh, uh he was a game ranger responsible for i think the entire northern half of kenya during uh, the height of his career uh which was in the 60s and 50s uh and he instituted a scheme uh, uh that would uh, that involved the wata people who were elephant hunters Called the Galana scheme, and it really was a harbinger of some of the tribal conservancies that we're now seeing in in other parts of Africa uh, that are very successful, especially in Namibia. Uh, that would have involved uh, it involved the the Wata gave them a quota on um, ivory. Ivory was still legal to trade then, and any money that was realized that wasn't directly uh, uh, turned over to the to the tribe was used for conservation of habitat and and uh, large megafauna.
2: You brought uh, up... I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: <clears throat> yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm just... Uh, my throat's a little dry. Uh, Parker was especially interesting to me because he really was, took the long view on what was going on in Africa, and in one sense it was very depressing because he felt and feels that the age of, the megafauna, of megafauna is over uh, simply because of the growth of human population in Africa. And that, especially in regard to elephants, they evolved having a continent at their disposal. They need to have the. They had these massive migration routes that reached from the uh, Horn of Africa all the way down to the Cape, and they were essentially constantly uh, en route on these routes. They were always moving, always browsing, never staying in one place long. And that when we basically turned Africa from a loose confederation of. Um, Tribal homelands uh, and a largely undeveloped continent into a continent of modern nations connected by modern infrastructure, we denied the elephants' these migration routes and hence doomed them uh, but on the other hand, <coughs> excuse me he he feels that there can be some accommodation uh, with uh, large wild animals if people are willing. To do what's now considered unthinkable, which is engage in heavy calls when necessary to keep elephants and and perhaps other animals within the range of the within the limits of the habitat. He doesn't feel this is going to be done because of the growth of the animal rights movement, and that uh, you know consequently the future looks pretty grim for African wildlife because as it stands now. Wildlife in Africa takes active management, and that sometimes involves killing animals, and that's just not really acceptable within the context of this new environmentalism, and I'm putting that in quotes, that's essentially conflated with animal rights activism. And uh, the old-school conservation approach to wildlife management is pretty much out the window, and he thinks that that's the only chance we have, really, of Maintaining even a semblance of wild wild systems in Africa
2: and I have a tendency to agree with you when having worked in conservation for so long, living on the ground and seeing what large species and large landscapes are um, capable of accomplishing in terms of biodiversity okay there 's all the new terms, hot spots, and all of this, but um, it comes down to i guess a few parts: one, why is a park created? the difference of a national park in africa versus a national park I'd say here in the us or europe um uh, one ours are more for our entertainment and um recreation where in africa they're set aside to as i think ian parker put it an option to extinction so um let's we we've done a lot of discussion on elephants in our wild world. Let's let's stay here for a little minute. We've got a few minutes left until we go to our first break. Sure. So elephants are critically endangered right now mm-hmm. or maybe not critically, they're certainly endangered and that is due mostly to the poaching and the ivory trade. All so right. let's say a perfect world that is gone. And mm-hmm. now we have this continental landscape architect confined to small areas that we've set aside Mm -hmm. they're going and as you say in your book very clearly um, they're quickly going to outgrow and demolish their environment so let's I'd like to hear a a little discussion here and how we will uh, and we can always pick this up after the break how will we find a middle ground between I'm going to call it extremism animal rights animal welfare where every single individual counts Two large landscape.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as you say, right now the since I wrote the book, uh, they, we just when I wrote this book, we first we the, the latest the latest iteration of poaching had just begun. I mean, the, this massive, uh, 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 you know, this this holocaust. Escalation. Of, yeah, this this second holocaust of elephants that we we first we saw the first one in the 1980s we're now well into the the second phase where entire populations are being liquidated especially in West Africa uh, but also now in East Africa they haven't got a handle on it you know and until they do this idea i mean we may not even have to worry <laughs> about you know how how to maintain elephants in in confined parks if this keeps and, going on and by on. that
2: you mean they'll just be gone
3: the problem gone.
2: will have solved itself. They'll be yeah, gone.
3: Because they won't be there. But, okay. you know, assuming, like you say, there is a perfect world and that we are able to get a handle on the poaching, we're still going to be faced with a you know a, a rapidly growing human population in Africa,
1: you know, mm-hmm.
3: discrete constricted areas where elephants can exist. So there, that means that there's going to have to be two things that occur. In Namibia, where there's few, relatively few people, only 3 million in a very large country, and they have quite a few elephants. Uh, they're, number one, doing a, aggressive calls. They're also uh, not as aggressive as they would like because they find that they, too, are hobbled by uh, animal rights outrage. But uh, they are, do have trophy hunting there, and they're working to establish corridors between one reserve to the other. And that's probably the best we can hope for is that you have secure, established migration routes between different refugia that elephants can use, that they're comfortable with, that they know. Uh, at the same time, they will be, they will, their, their numbers will be managed for the benefit of local people, either in terms of trophy hunting, where the proceeds are then returned to the people, and or for the meat, because that's a, in Africa, protein, as you know, is always scarce, and anything that can improve diets will really increase local support for conservation.
2: You've brought so. up three really important aspects. One, Namibia, a very <laughs> successful conservation uh, management uh, in terms of their country. Um, it's lack of pop- human population and its amount of space versus Kenya, which yeah. is completely the opposite. I think somewhere in your book you mentioned uh, the increase in population, but not only human population, but uh, we've got a couple of minutes here, and I'd like you to address... This uh, concept that, once again, you went over with Ian Parker, biomass, the trends yeah. and shifts in biomass. Give yes, us a human,
3: little about that. Is human, it's not just the sheer numbers of human beings, but as Parker uh, pointed out, it's, it, it's, they're, they're, these are human beings who have... Uh, the, the taste of the developed world, which means that they, their use of resources is disproportionate even to their numbers. So but basically now Kenyans are and aspire to be like us, as is people in the developed world, as, as is normal. They want the good things in life, too. But that means that their, their consumption of resources is accelerating. And when you have, number one just the sheer number of people skyrocketing as it is population continues to grow very rapidly in Kenya and that these are people who are not just subsistence farmers on shambas anymore as they were a generation ago even, but urban people who have highly sophisticated tastes and maybe the income to uh, accommodate those, accommodate those tastes. They want a lot of things and that comes at the expense of the resource. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a double-edged sword here. It's not just human numbers. It's also, the t- as, as Parker put it, the type of people we have created and that we are that, that's driving uh, uh, this diminution of wildlife.
2: And I, I guess we could sum that up as you've put in your book also, The Modern Human, which has yeah. only um, come up in, I'm going to say, the last 30 to 50 years, this, this quest for stuff. Over yeah. consumption and yeah. the um, impacts it has on wildlife. So mm-hmm. we're going to, I think we're, we're in time for a break here. So rather than get into something and not be able to finish it, let's take our break now because I do want to pick this up. So once again, we're speaking with Glenn Martin author of Game Changer, Animal Rights and the Fate of Africa's Wildlife. Um, I strongly urge my listeners and anyone who is concerned with these aspects of wildlife to pick up this book. It's, it's a, a stunning array of information and uh, we'll be right back, so stick with us.
4: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brains
1: firing really fast.
4: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G
4: News, News. News. Opinion News. Your voice counts Call toll free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 VoiceAmerica.com
1: You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World
2: And welcome back to Our Wild World. My guest today is Glenn Martin, author of Game Changer, Animal Rights, and the Fate of Africa's Wildlife. And what we're talking about is the challenges and possibly the restrictions and perhaps even impending doom that animal rights, this strong movement of animal rights, is putting onto traditional conservation. So, Glenn, maybe we can back up here a minute and talk about... Management in Africa over wildlife populations, um, how it used to be compared to it requires definite uh, inter, intersection uh, or i 'm not sure if that 's the right word i 'm looking for by people in terms of an over overpopulated overconsuming population
3: right well you know as parker uh, Ian Parker pointed out uh, when he first pursued conservation. It was a dispassionate process. Emotion wasn't involved. It was considered the right thing to do, and it was in the public, in the, in the interests of the of, of the common will. And and people just uh, assumed it was good, and it was science based. You know, according to the best science of the time. And it and it, it that involved again, as I mentioned. Animal management. And people had no problem with that because there wasn't, uh, animals hadn't yet been uh, anthropomorphized into our, our uh, equivalent. Uh, uh, they weren't considered our, our compeers and our friends. They were considered part of the natural world and either as a resource uh, to be exploited on one level or to be enjoyed on another. But their, their management was never in question. You know, that is, and that meant, of course, that you had uh, culls, you had hunting. Uh, but there was also a lot more land devoted to conservation then in the early 1900s. Much more was designated as game parks in 1900 than there was in 2000 or now. Of course, that has to do with uh, the needs of the the, uh, the population that's grown since then. But in any event, there wasn't in any any concept of animal rights or of of uh, managing it other than actively and hands on. Uh, now, of course. In Kenya especially, but in other parts of Africa, uh, Botswana seems to be going that way more and more. Uh, the idea is that every animal's life is sacrosanct and that they are sentient, which may well be true in the sense that they're feeling, uh, and even intelligent, which may be harder to prove. Uh, but in any event that uh, we have no right to kill any individual animal, especially a wild animal, and that we must conserve each animal, just as we attempt to conserve the species. The problem is that when you attempt to conserve the individual animal, it can become problematic in terms of species conservation, because the species as a whole demands conservation of the habitat as a whole. Which means that at certain points, at certain times, animals—certain animals—must be killed uh, to prevent overgrazing of the range, or or um, uh, just uh,
2: biodiversity you know. protection. Uh, Yeah, uh,
3: so in any event, that's the problem now. We have two different uh, perspectives on what constitutes conservation, but the second one, the modern one, has been conflated with uh, 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 this almost a religious sensibility about animals, and that interferes with the science-based applications.
2: So you, you brought up an interesting word, religious. And I think you stated it in your book that, um, and it might have been Ian Parker that uh, said it this way, that environmentalism has never been more, quote, voguish, but yeah. that real conservation is declining. Um, where do you think this impulse, this, that iconic wildlife has become more important than a stable economy or as a currency as it used to be and that Animal welfare and this animal rights began. You mentioned hands-on management in the past in Africa. Would you say it's now more a hands-off because it's mostly Western? You know, in
3: the book, I I actually I I, I'm a little bold, perhaps, and but I think I defend my position pretty well that this modern movement really had its genesis with George Adamson and the Born Free books. Uh, Adamson was a game ranger who worked with Parker. And as you know, he uh, he became uh, renowned worldwide for his uh, uh, taming of uh, uh, different lions, most most uh, famously Elsa, the lioness. And uh, movies were made of his work, and uh, you know foundations were started, and uh, the Born Free Foundation uh, is is part of that now, and and they are part of the this uh, uh, you know it's pretty much the the. The, the, they're they're the, the point of the spear in terms of uh, uh, this this new mode of conservation in Africa, uh, and you know when when Born Free was made, it it really gave people a different perspective on the African lion. It was no longer just this insensate predator that killed everything that it came in contact with. It they were complicated animals. They had social lives. That they were very appealing in their own right. The problem is, I think that that then it just you know that in itself wasn't kept in perspective. That we've continually disnified uh, the African lion and, and other African wildlife, and given given them big eyes and made them look cute and fuzzy. And, and The Lion King, they don't eat game; they eat grasshoppers. And you know, as a consequence, we 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 uh, deify the individual lion. But uh, in the in the context of that, we've we've lost sight of everything that sustains the lion. And the hard choices that that may involve. Uh, And a lot of stuff came out of Born Free, some good, some bad. But I think that that was really the turning point, and that that really set the stage for the larger animal rights movement.
2: And I think it's important that we do here in the West compared to, let's say, the days of Descartes, where... Mm -hmm. Animals were insensate, uh, unfeeling uh, beings, same as they thought of babies. They couldn't feel pain. I think it's important that we understand that there is such a thing as the animal mind and that they do live in communities and that each animal recognizes itself as an individual within its neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But bringing this animal welfare more important than people is highly destructive, and I've talked about this a lot. That if we don't consider the security of the people, whether yeah. it be food security, social security, and economic security, over or at least equal to the security of wildlife, that we're going to be heading toward disaster. So, oh, yeah,
3: I think you're right. I mean, the one thing I have heard over and over in Africa from local people, from the local communities, is that. Uh, Western, The Western world, the people in the developed world care more about the individual animal, care more about this one elephant, this one rhino, this one lion, than you do about me and my child and my family. And I have to eat just as you have to eat. And, you know, if you help me... Heat, if you help me with my life I'd be more more inclined to to support conservation initiatives but the idea and I, I heard this from a guy who was my fixer in Kenya uh, who I, I traveled with a lot uh, especially when I was in Nairobi you know we, in one of our conversations he just you know I just he said I just can 't understand this idea of animal rights. Human rights, yes, but, you know, I have rights, but, you know, the animal doesn't have rights. The animal is there for me to use or to protect as I see fit. But when you tell me that this animal has rights, it's an insult to me. You know, it's it's hard for me to even survive in Nairobi. And you're telling me that this animal rights trumps my rights. It's offensive.
2: And, you know, just quickly off the top of my head, I see a parallel here. We in the in the West, you know, with our donor funding and our – usually these big conservation organizations have head offices here in the West or in Europe. And uh, huge amounts of money and that we have the luxury to care about individual African megafauna – but we're not really caring about, let's say, our own carnivores that are being decimated at tremendous rates through uh, government killing programs. And there's a real disconnect there. So how do you think we can, you, me, people like us in conservation that are actually trying to protect and conserve species, habitat, and the people who live with it, how do you think we can go about explaining or defining and turning the tide where animal rights still has concern, but doesn't trump yeah, survival of the know. people. Yeah, I don't know. I
3: I have no easy, pat easy answers for that because at a certain point there may have to be confrontations. The, I mean, we may have to call you know uh, something ridiculous when it, it is, or we may have to. Uh, there, you know, there has to be somehow a presentation of of. of Reality. And uh, you might have to choose sides. I mean, some of the, the material that I see now about uh, animal, you know, the animal rights in Africa and elsewhere, it, it, it just is so totally erroneous and unconnected with any kind of science-based reality. It confounds me. And, it, you know, candidly, it angers me. And I, I'm I'm not in the con I'm not in the conservation game as it were. I'm not directly vested in it. You know, but as a reporter I I find it uh discouraging when, you know, hallucinations or fantasy are presented as reality. And I feel that it's my job then to shed some light on that.
2: I've but, interviewed I'm sorry, go ahead. I no, that, That's
3: basically it. I mean I, I have no answers except that there has to be there there has to be some counter to these uh, uh, bogus uh, arguments and that there has to be, it has to be aggressive because I think people uh, in conservation have been, a lot of them have been very spooked uh, by the uh, aggressiveness and the success of the animal rights movement and they're disinclined to uh, engage them and I think that's got to change before there's any progress.
2: I actually am um, going to have to disagree with you here. I think uh, the work that you've done and other environmental reporters and journalists and investigative, like Will Stolzenberg or uh-huh. Julian Rademeyer, that have not come from this, from come to this from a, co- a vested conservation interest, uh-huh. actually help us because you have you've disconnected the emotional animal rights, animal welfare to um, having to work in all of this and that you give us some perspective and perspective is a big theme throughout your book and I think actually reading books from people like you give us that perspective that we can find some of a dividing line and perhaps just a thought winging it out there maybe the dividing line between animal rights animal welfare is can apply to captive wildlife that's yeah. something completely different. Each yep. individual animal counts in a captive situation, where in large landscape species survival plan, it, it's going to take a little fudging and not one size fits all, but perhaps not every single animal counts. In that, An example, the rhino hunt in Namibia recently, and the huge outcry about that. So they couldn't stop that, and so now there's pressure to U.S. Fish and Wildlife to not bring it in. Well, that's yeah, not going you know, to help to me, anything. me, that's,
3: that's so counterproductive. Namibia's game quotas are rigorously managed, and 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 there's tremendous oversight on them. And, yeah, I understand a lot of people would find that offensive, but the problem isn't the regulated hunt in Namibia. It's the wholesale slaughter and holocaust in all of Africa uh, on the remaining rhino populations. And, you know, that's where the the... That's where we need the effort, you know, not in the regulated hunt. If it is truly a regulated hunt, and I acknowledge there's problems with that. Tanzania also claims to have have a regulated hunting economy, but it doesn't have the good governance that Namibia has, and there's issues there. You know, it's it's not a perfect system, but no matter what, we have to grapple with things as they are and not this normative sense of how, how we would like them to be.
2: Very well put, very well put. So we have to disengage some of this knee-jerk emotionalism about these individual disnified animals, Marius the giraffe and the four lions at the Copenhagen Zoo, and mm-hmm. balance that against the life of all giraffes, their <coughs> ecosystem, the biodiversity that cascades from their presence and the health of that system to species. And, and I think you call it the big picture.
0: So mm-hmm.
2: um, let's, let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about hunting. Um, it's a, you can't really have a conversation today about conservation without including hunting. And this is where uh, the emotional knee jerk reaction of the large conservation organizations are really cracking down and having an impact by uh, addressing and forcing political changes and policies in Africa. We've got a a couple of minutes, so if we need to, we'll pick this up after the break. But Mm -hmm. let's get into that. You know, you you talk about this a lot, and you single out a particular uh, organization many times, IFA, which Mm -hmm. has accomplished a lot of good things. I've interviewed them on my program, and they bring awareness about the importance of wildlife. But let's talk about the political pressure that their dollars bring
3: yeah, uh, as you say, yeah, IFA has done some good things, uh, you know. But their their power, especially in Kenya, is, is so profound that that you know essentially they they influence government, individual ministers certainly, and and government policy as a whole. Uh, a few years ago, there, as I said, there were efforts to to uh, amend the uh, the wildlife management uh, regulatory apparatus in Kenya, and and they were just so aggressive and so knee jerk, and they introduced legislation that not only uh, opposed any of the reforms, but would have made it uh, impossible even to... Um, that the, the would have prescribed uh, bird hunting in Kenya. And that's one of the last few sources of revenue for many of these really remote communities, uh, tribal communities, especially in uh, Sam, the Samburu. They uh, uh, they don't get much income in any event, but a lot of it is uh, comes from uh, bird hunting, guinea fowl and sand grouse hunting, and if that would have been taken away from them, I mean, what, then the only thing then they would have had, of course, their pastoral people would be their goats and their sheep and their cows. So you would have seen an even larger increase in livestock on an already over overgrazed and overbrowsed landscape. So, you know, you can't just deny people uh, the resources that surround them and uh, access an option to those resources and yet put the responsibility for the maintenance of those resources on them. I mean it's just it's it's inequitable and and it's unsustainable.
2: That's, that's one of the best answers I've ever heard. So I want to thank you for that. We're <coughs> going to head into a break here. Once again, we're, uh, my guest today is Glenn Martin, author of Game Changer, uh, The Fate of Africa's Megafauna, and Animal Rights. So uh, I strongly urge our listeners to pick up this book. If you're in conservation, it is a must-read. If you're in animal rights, it is a must-read. So stick with us. We'll be right back.
4: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
4: Successful life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 that's one 472 5788 If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
2: Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. And my guest today is Glenn Martin, author of Game Changer, a critical read. I strongly urge you to read it. So before the break, we um, brought up an interesting point. Glenn mentioned uh, without local people in Africa, in these landscapes, uh, being able to benefit and be incentivized to care about conservation and uh, wildlife, that it forces them to turn into more pastoralism, cattle. You mentioned the Samburu. So let's just segue here for a minute about the increase of cattle. We talked earlier about increases of biomass and the biomass shifting. What are the impacts of turning Africa into a cattle grazing ground?
3: Well, you know, that's, that's uh, kind of the, we have a, 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 a hydro-headed problem here. On the one hand, as, as Parker noted the human biomass is not only growing, but it's becoming increasingly urbanized and demands nice, shiny new things, like we all do. On the other hand, pastoralism is still uh, very much a respected and even revered tradition in, in East Africa. There's still tremendous numbers of people out on the land. And, you know, as Lawrence Frank once noted to me, the, the uh, Kenyan shilling is considered a poor, if acceptable, substitute for a cow. I mean, cattle are still literally... The the coin of the realm in East Africa. I mean, things are purchased with cows. Uh, bridal dowries are established. People settle their debts with cattle. So, the it's the the you know the emphasis is on obtaining as many cattle as possible, not on 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 upbreeding, up not on on improving bloodlines, or of putting the a, a correct number of cattle out on the range that can be sustained, but on 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 just having as many cattle as possible. And that's why when you travel through Kenya and Tanzania and other parts of East Africa, you see these massive herds of cattle that are about the size of Great Danes. They're they're small, they're they're diseased, they're genetically uh, truncated, they're infirm, but they're cows. And each one of those cows has a real discrete value as currency. It's fiat currency for East Africa. So, I mean, you know, when we have that that amount of livestock, it has to come at the expense of wildlife and that number of livestock. I mean, uh, a work by uh, uh, several people I interviewed indicate that cattle and wildlife can coexist, but they can't inhabit the same range. They don't like propinquity with each other. So... You know, we have to limit, I mean, not have to limit, but there has to be limits on cattle if we want to sustain healthy numbers of wildlife. In the past, that wasn't a problem, for example, in Maasai land, because there weren't that many Maasai and that many cattle. Now there's a lot of Maasai, and every one of them has a large herd and wants more, because that you establish your prestige and your wealth in the community by the number of cattle you have. So, yeah. That's it's the sort issue. of the version one of the our walls.
2: It's sort of the version of our Wall Street, right? Right.
3: But, you know, I, let me, if I can uh, just be, you know, allowed a quick addendum. Now, a recent development has been the value of uh, of uh, cell phones to uh, rural communities in Africa. When I first started researching this story in about 2000, uh, in like Kipia and uh, other remote parts of, uh, of of East Africa down in the Serengeti, There weren't any landlines, and people had been uh, uh, communicating for years by CB radio. And landlines had just started coming into Laquipia, and people didn't know how to use them. The ranchers were still saying over when they (laughs) they wanted to end the conversation. I came back four years later, and everyone had cell phones. And that includes uh, Maasai pastoralists. And they were checking cattle prices in Mombasa, uh, and that has really tur- turned things around. And they were willing to liquidate cattle in order to obtain electronic mobile devices. And that, you know, bringing those folks into the just sort of leapfrogging past landline telephony into the um, mobile, internet, uh, mobile uh, communications age is really uh, causing some profound disruptions to their society that seemed impossible even a few years before.
2: So when you say disruptions, do you mean a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean in the thing? good
3: sense that, yeah, cattle had become almost secondary to having these devices and that they were, they were very expensive, you know, uh, but they were willing to pay a lot of money, which means they were willing to liquidate cattle to obtain them. I mean, because for, for everybody else, they could now talk to relatives in, in disparate parts of the country. They they're constantly texting. They're extremely adept with these devices, far better than I was, far more than I was. And it and was I'm something really to see a you know a Maasai Moran standing with his fighting stick and his spear and shield uh, up on one leg, as they do, and you know texting madly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that that certainly changes our, our our iconic perception of this artifact of yeah. tribal Kenya. And yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up because I noticed the same thing in a matter of two or three years from I'd go to Africa and it was such a great thing to be able to disconnect from the computer, from the email, from the phone and everything. And now you can't do that. But I'm really glad you brought that up because what that, as you called it, leapfrogging technology, which is the same term I use, that it has made a a tremendous difference. So a minute ago you mentioned value, not only the value of cattle. And, you know, cell phones and checking prices and being able to um, move cattle through to slaughter more quickly yeah. and at the best prices as opposed to facing drought and catastrophe and getting it to the abattoirs. So mm-hmm. also in your book, you, one of your um, interviewees discussed evaluating the different species and how do we do this objectively and can it be done with so many varying perspectives, that is – traditional conservation management to animal rights, animal welfare.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you mean evaluating the species, what, in terms of their um, their appeal or their...
2: Uh, well, I guess it's all, you know, what? how are we going to define evaluating and what is of value? Is an elephant more valuable than a, an impala or a lion right. or right. a rhino?
3: Yeah, and that's I think that's a conundrum that even confounds uh, you know animal rights advocates. You know, which when you start you know uh, putting uh, value on the individual animal as opposed to the system or the, or the or the health of a complex of species, then you have to start parsing the value of different animals, as you say. Uh, you know what appeals to us about elephants and rhinos is that they're magnificent. Same way with lions, other animals are, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, cute and fuzzy and, uh, uh, or just and still of kind of herd. a parental response, like bush babies, for example. So, uh, you know, that, but you know who who's going to love the pangolin or the uh, the uh, the African or the rock python? You know, and yet they're just as critical to the system as any other animal.
2: And I think that's where some of the animal rights, animal welfare falls off and why it can fall apart in terms of this discussion we're having today and, and the term charismatic. We care yeah. about the charismatic species, the panda, the polar bear, so they get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult, in, in, in even in terms of science-based conservation, to bring the Charisma, up of as I think you put it in your book, um, lizards, insects, and spiders, that's and they're right. yeah, just that was, as critical.
3: Uh, Thomas McQueen, who made that, uh, not McQueen, but Thomas Nick um, Shane. Shane, who made that, that observation to me. Yeah.
2: So I think that's that's a point that um, animal rights, animal welfare, needs to consider that if you're going to cherry pick charisma and charismatic species, then um, at least be willing to look at the cascade of what depends upon those species and appreciate the entire ecosystem in terms of the big picture, large landscape. Mm -hmm. So um, we talked about George Adamson a little bit, and I happen to work with Tony Fitzjohn, uh, Mm -hmm. George's protege, wonderful man, but he tends to agree with us as a... I mean, he loves his individual lions, yes, but at the same time, he certainly agrees that uh, we have to look at this as, as species as opposed to individuals. It's easy to love an individual animal once you've met it, but um, when, I'd say, your average tourist looks at a pride of lions, they don't recognize that that particular lion is identified and is very different than a lion elsewhere. Right. So, um you also, in your book, had mentioned Sam Wasser, who is going to be my guest on April seventh, and mm-hmm. his work, and uh, in in terms of how this is going to help uh, international m- management policies. So this leads once again back into elephants. They're such a touchy subject this day, these days, especially in terms of talking about killing them. But uh, you talk a lot earlier about ivory as currency versus commodity. And I think we can apply that to wildlife a lot today. Could you talk about that a little bit?
3: About animals as currency as opposed to wildlife? Uh, uh, uh,
2: um, Animals as currency, like you were talking, is cattle. And let's... put it to wildlife currency versus yeah. commodity uh, you know and i and i
3: think that this is one this is one area where con you know conservationist by conservationists i mean the old school uh, management oriented conservationists. this is a conundrum that confounds them too because once we start commodifying wildlife it it provides a um, uh, an outlet for illicit products and yet uh for specifically addressing the Af- the 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 rhino, there may not be an alternative at this point uh, because the, they're they're getting wiped out so fast that unless we do something, they're all going to be gone very soon. And one approach, which and this is uh, promulgated by the folks who are uh, most involved in their direct conservation, uh, 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 rhino, South Africa, basically rhino ranches in South Africa. Are basically saying, Look, our animals are being killed off after they can be replaced uh, we 're sawing off the horns, and that helps, but unless we can get a significant amount of money uh, to fund these efforts we 're going under, and that means they 're going under and Since the rhino horn market is 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 basically out in the open anyway i mean it's it 's a black market, but it's it, no one is doing anything to stop it or can stop it that we need to regulate these horns. We need to um, uh, uh, sell them, uh, have an open market on them, and just acknowledge the reality. And, you know, at this point, I think that that might be something worth trying because the alternative has is, is failed massively. We're not, we haven't scotched the demand for them. So, uh, you know, several people I interviewed say, look, when there is demand, you either have to satisfy it or else it will overwhelm you so huh. we 're going to have to somehow I think uh, acknowledge that demand and accommodate it and If we saw off rhino horns, we both we move the incentive for killing rhinos and we supply the market and ultimately, perhaps we can even glut the market so that the price goes down and there's even less incentive to kill the animals.
2: That's an excellent point and I really appreciate you making it because the rhino horn uh trade debate is a hot topic today mm-hmm. and it's very divisive and once again it brings in everything you're talking about and you cover in your book Game Changer uh the fate of African wildlife and new conservation and animal rights that perhaps a short uh, a a stopgap measure for now would be to legalize the trade in rhino horn. But, but of of legal and, and um, highly
3: regulated, uh, so the, now there still would be a black market trade. But if the if the legal trade, if the price of the legal trade does a legal horn undercuts the black market trade, then I think the black market would wither. And I, I'm just not thinking that. I mean, I think that that's that's the rationale for the entire basis here for this argument.
2: And it, it might be the way we have to go until we all find. A, some way to coexist, not only in terms of belief systems, in terms of of what we're talking about here, animal rights, animal welfare, and large Mm -hmm. landscape conservation, but also in terms of uh, protecting wildlife and whether you care for hunting or not, at least a trade in rhino horn could protect the species. So um, we have about three minutes, and you made a really wonderful comment, and maybe we should end on this. Um, It was about the noble intent, a promising retread of the peaceable kingdom, not Mm -hmm. only lion laying down with the lamb, but human laying down with the lion, uh, and such implications. Uh, Expound upon that a little bit. Well,
3: uh, yeah, I I think that you know, the Peaceable Kingdom is, is, a, is a very seductive metaphor, and it's as, as many metaphors, that's pretty much what it is. It, it has no grounding in anything we can really achieve. Uh, what we can achieve is a, a, our rational wildlife policies that benefit systems, that benefit complexes of species, and that uh, benefit local people who uh, live in the areas where these animals exist. You know, and until we can accommodate all three of those uh, components, you know, we're not going to have any true conservation or we're not going to have any animals whose rights we can be concerned about. Uh, We have to make sure the local stakeholders get what they need out of the resource to survive, and we have to approach, you know, conservation. We have to look to the past for our inspiration. You know, those guys had a right on a lot of points, on a lot of counts. You know, in nineteen hundred in East Africa, you know they had some things wrong, but their general view, I think, was pretty much spot on that we have to manage this as large systems as landscapes of which animals are a part and human beings are a part, and we can't start parsing individuals out, either people or animals uh, when we when we go that way, we lose it all, it frays and it eventually disappears.
2: And I thank you for that answer, because that is exactly what this program, our wild world, is about that it is an interconnected web global planet wide and that we are a part of it as much as animals and every other thing that depends upon uh, how they manage how the animals manage a landscape just by doing what they do that when we start parsing out and individuating. A particular species, or particular people, or particular belief systems. Then, as Glenn just said, the whole thing will collapse. We have about uh, thirty seconds here. Uh, anything that you would like—a uh, point we didn't cover, or we've got about a minute. I'm sorry—that you'd really like our listeners to take away today.
3: Well, uh, I think I think we've pretty well covered it all. It's just the only thing I, I would I would ask in, in this debate or anything. Uh, related to com, uh, conservation is that, you know, we really do try to apply the best available science and that we try to look at things as objectively as possible and not let our individual proclivities, uh, our, our passions, you know, override the larger issue. I mean, I think we all want the same thing, you know, but, uh, you know, in many ways, situations there are right ways and wrong ways to go about it and the problem here is the stakes are so large and things are changing so fast that we don't have that much time and that much opportunity to get it right and so we can't be you know diverted by these sideshows
2: and i appreciate that comment i'd say that sums it up beautifully and i thank you so much for participating today and having this conversation and once again i urge our listeners to pick up glenn's book game changer and that's it for this week thank you glenn thank you